0: As we continue with our worship this morning, we come today self-consciously to the Word of a God who is our King, and, uh, and we are His subjects. It's nice to be reminded of that, I think, as we come to His Word. We recognize who He is, and who we are, and who we're not. We are the gracious recipients of His wisdom. We come with our mouths closed. We come with our hearts open. And we come as those, I hope, who are saying, Lord, speak to me through this part of your word. So as we do that, we come today to Luke chapter 19. And with it, to the story of a man named Zacchaeus. And hey, listen, you may be familiar with the story of Zacchaeus, or better yet, you are in all likelihood familiar with the song about the story of Zacchaeus. And if that is true, then there is at least one thing that you already know about this guy Zacchaeus that we're going to look at today. And that is that Zacchaeus was a what? Now, hang on, I'm going to sing it. And you're going to finish it. And I'm going to tell you in advance, even though it was 9 a.m., they killed it. So (laughs) I'm just going to do the first line with you, okay? You ready? Zacchaeus was a... Yes, he was. (laughs) Yes, he was. All right, now put his sandals on for a minute and leave them on today. Put his sandals on and leave leave them on today. And feel the indignity of that. Doesn't feel so good, does it? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. Well, I'll bet he was excited about that. <laughs> like he was a wee little man in his day, and here we are 2,000 years later. And to hundreds of millions of people, he's been a wee little man and yet is. Even in heaven, I think he's running into people, and they're going, Zacchaeus, wee little guy? Hey, you're the guy! You're the wee man! (laughs) He's not excited about that. Not even in heaven, I don't think. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, which is suggestive, I think, of more than just that he was a smaller, abnormally small person. I, I think he was an abnormally small person because there was something organically wrong with him physically. It suggests a physically deformed person. There's a difference. So you come to the story and you're like, all right, I get it. Zacchaeus was a wee little man. He was a physically deformed man. Got that, knew that, Tom. Okay, great. Well, here's what you also need to know about Zacchaeus. You need to know that he was a spiritually deformed man too. He was deformed, not just in body, but he was deformed in soul. And if you're going to connect with this story, the way that Luke is calling you to connect with this story, okay, here's the other thing you need to know. So am I and so are you. It is very clear, I think, as you read through this story, that Luke has constructed it in such a way as to draw you in and then to reveal to you that you're Zacchaeus. And if you're here and you're 6'4 and you're going, hey man, I don't really see the resemblance, uh, then you've missed my point, okay? I mean, first of all, good for you, you're 6'4, so that's cool. I'm like 5'10 with my shoes on and 14 pairs of socks, okay? So we're jealous, but that's not the point. Set the body piece aside. I am like Zacchaeus in soul in that I am deformed by sin, by nature, by habits and practices that reflect that sin nature. And here's the thing, whether you've recognized this yet or not, Luke wants you to recognize that so are you. You are Zacchaeus in this story, and he wants you to see that you're Zacchaeus in this story for a reason, so that you can then respond to Jesus in this story, the way that Zacchaeus responds to Jesus in this story, and then find in Jesus what Zacchaeus finds. So we're going to look today at the story of this guy named Zacchaeus, but it takes place in the city of Jericho, and that too is important. Jericho was a magnificent city in the days of Jesus. It was referred to in that day as the Eden Do you hear that? Of Palestine. That is a reference to the Garden of Eden. Now, why was it referred to by that? Because it was garden-like. It was beautiful. It was famous for its balsam groves and for all of its date palms. It was the rose capital of the Middle East, which means that it was not only beautiful to the eye, but, but to the nose. It was said that you could smell Jericho coming from miles away. And unlike, you know, so many of our industrialized cities, Jericho smelled wonderful. Magnificent place. Ancient Jericho was located six miles north of the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is the lowest elevated spot on the entire surface of the earth. What that means, practically speaking, is that Jericho was unseasonably warm every season of the year. And what that means, practically speaking, is that if you were part of the rich and famous, the wealthy elite, guess where you had a winter home? Jericho. Highly wealthy, highly cultured, vibrant, amazing place. Herod the Great built a theater in Jericho. Archelaus built a palace in Jericho. Mark Antony took Jericho and gave it to Cleopatra as a gift. Now that's a gift, guys. That's a big deal. Pretty amazing. It was very vibrant economically, too. It was a place of great commerce. It was located on one of the three largest trade routes in this entire region of the world. When Rome came in and they conquered Jericho amongst all of the rest of Palestine and most of the rest of the world, they established Jericho as one of their three primary taxing centers for this region of the world. And so then when Luke comes to us in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, which is where we start today, and he tells us that Jesus entered Jericho, he is calling to mind this very beautiful, very fragrant, very vibrant, you know, wealthy, elite, culturally amazing place. A city whose streets, for reasons related to shade, to beauty, and to sustenance, were lined with sycamore fig trees. It's interesting. I went to Jericho a couple of years ago. We were going down to the Dead Sea, and some of you were probably with me on that trip. And so we're going down to the Dead Sea, and we go to Qumran and Masada and all that, and we stay at a hotel down there and go for a float in the Dead Sea. And it's amazing to float in the Dead Sea. It's like you sit down in a lounge chair. You're just like... It's unbelievable. It's awesome, unless you get the Dead Sea in your eye, and then you wish that you were dead. I mean, it's bad. It's bad. But on the way down, our tour bus guy said, you know, hey, why don't we go through Jericho? And so we pulled into Jericho, modern-day Jericho, which is near ancient Jericho. And the whole reason that we went in was to see the sycamore fig tree that's right next to one of the main streets, even still. Its streets were lined with these trees, But on the day that we're looking at today, the story of Zacchaeus, okay, it was lined with a lot more than just trees. People lined the streets of Jericho on this occasion. And here's why. Because Jesus of Nazareth was passing through. And somehow word had gotten to the city and had reverberated all the way through the city that Jesus, who we've been watching now for months, travel from the north in Galilee all the way now down to Jericho and He's going to come up through the center of Jericho, right up its main streets. His goal is pass through Jericho and 17 miles then on to Jerusalem where He will die about a week or so after the story takes place. He's going to offer His life For the sins of those who believe in him, well, okay, word had gotten to the city of Jericho and reverberated through the city of Jericho that this Jesus, who is massively famous at this point, is going to be coming right up our main street. And so schools emptied out, businesses emptied out, homes emptied out, and everybody kind of lined the streets and they're waiting to see Jesus. Everyone came out to see the Lord, including Zacchaeus. And so Luke says that Jesus entered Jericho and then he says that he was just passing through. So he didn't plan to stop until he meets Zacchaeus. And Luke says that there was a man named Zacchaeus, who again, we're supposed to identify with, who we're supposed to look at and go, hey, you know what? I may not be like him in body, but like in soul? Yeah, very much. There was a man named Zacchaeus who was deformed in his soul. And we know that because here now comes the description. He was a chief tax collector, to which Luke adds, and... He was rich. Here's how this worked. When Rome invaded a territory, after it raped, after it pillaged, after it plundered all of its citizens, and I want you to imagine for a moment that you're one of its citizens. After it raped, after it pillaged, after it plundered all of its citizens, after it killed its young men, defeating it in battle, after it took some of its women for itself, if you will. After it did all of that, It then divided up the territory into different taxing districts and then auctioned these taxing districts off, are you ready, to local people, because the local people knew who all the wealthy people were. They knew where all the money was. And so counting on the fact that there would be at least a few really greedy, money-worshiping people in every single community that it conquered, and they were always right about this, incidentally, it would hold an auction and auction off the taxing district to a tax collector, whoever the highest bidder happened to be, but who was also one of your own countrymen, somebody you went to school with, somebody you played tennis with, somebody you did business with, somebody you went to synagogue with, somebody who grew up in your neighborhood, maybe even one of your friends, and who did this for money. Now think about what a tax collector then is selling in return for money. They're selling their family. They're selling their friendships. They're selling their reputation. They're selling their conscience. In some sense, they're selling their soul because here's what happens you become a tax collector, and the whole culture marks you as unclean. And the temple in Jerusalem, to which you brought your sacrifices to atone for your sin, said, No, you're not welcome here anymore. Knowing that going in, these people bid. And these people won their bids. And they became tax collectors. And here's how it worked. Rome then came to the winning bidder, Mr. Tax Collector, and said, okay, Mr. Tax Collector, here's the deal. We're going to give you our soldiers, so the full force of the Roman Empire, which, you know, is irresistible. We've proved that with all our raping, pillaging, plundering. And you you get the idea. And we're going to allow you to use our force to collect the money from your own countrymen. And this is how much you have to give to us. But anything else you collect, and you can collect as much as you want, that's your salary. So set your own salary. Think about that. When Luke comes to us and he says, all right, here's the deal. Zacchaeus, yeah, he was a chief tax collector. He's telling you that Zacchaeus is that guy. He is that countryman. And then when he says, oh, and he was rich, he's saying that Zacchaeus took a lot more money from his countrymen than he simply needed to pay Rome and to live even a modest lifestyle, didn't he? So ask yourself, how much do you like Zacchaeus at this point? And yet Luke says in verse 3, that Zacchaeus of all people was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd that had already gathered on the main street to get a look at Jesus, he could not see Jesus, and not simply because he was small of stature. Look, if you're trying to see something, and someone who is significantly shorter than you is standing in front of you, are you upset by that? No. It's when the six-foot-four guy, sorry to call you out again, stands in front of you that it's a bummer. Listen, Zacchaeus can't see because he's small of stature, yes, but the real reason he can't see is because when the crowd sees him come and they all link elbows and give him one in the face when he tries to break through. He can't see because these people hate him. <laughs> he can't see because he's deformed not just in body but in soul, And so then Zacchaeus, this guy that we're all supposed to be identifying with, incidentally, did something utterly undignified, particularly for a Middle Eastern man. And curiously, we've seen this three or four times now in the book of Luke. He reaches down between his feet. He gathers up his robes that he's wearing. He pulls them up between his legs, thus bearing his legs. There's a nakedness in this, and that's the shameful part of this part. And he tucks off his robes into his belt. No Middle Eastern man would have done this. If you were in the shorts selling business back then, you know, you wouldn't make it a week. Nobody interested. Nobody bared their legs publicly. And then he did another undignified thing. He ran. Nike could never have been founded back then. No one ran. It's undignified. Shameful. And then, of course, he climbs a tree. It's just indignity upon indignity. It's shame upon shame, and he doesn't care. He wants to see Christ. So he ran ahead. He can't get through the crowd. He ran ahead of Jesus is the idea. He's walking up the street, run ahead, and he climbs up into one of those sycamore fig trees alongside the road so that he can see Jesus, for Jesus was about to pass that way. And if you think about it, in doing this, Zacchaeus was making a very public, and I think also a very clear statement, which is what? He's saying, hey, I'm a sinner. I am a tax collector. I am a man who is deformed in body, and that's obvious, but let me tell you what's even more obvious. I'm deformed in soul. I have lived my life in such a way, the things that I've done and haven't done, said and haven't said, you know, the, the decisions I've made or, or, and should have made, the places I've been and the places I, I should have been. I have lived my life in such a way as to justly, rightly place me up in a tree that is emblematic of my sin and guilt and shame and worthiness to suffer for the whole of it. And here I am, exposed, naked in some sense, you see, before God and before men, before this crowd that reviles and rejects me as a thief and as a criminal. So Zacchaeus gathered up his robes and pulled them up between his legs and tucked them off into his belt, bearing his legs, and ran up the street and climbed up the tree so that he could see Jesus, for Jesus was about to pass that way. Now notice what Jesus does. Because he does it for everyone who confesses that they're a tax collector and a sinner. That indeed they've lived their lives in such a way as to put them in a tree justly. It says, and when Jesus came to the place of this tree, he looked up and he saw Zacchaeus in the tree. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, which must have been absolutely stunning. And here's why. How in the world, I mean, if you're Zacchaeus, does Jesus know his name? You know, it's not like they're buds. They're not hanging out. The idea, I think, is that they've never met. He looks up in the tree, he sees Zacchaeus, and he calls Zacchaeus by name. It is so amazingly personal and stunning. We don't expect that kind of attention. We don't expect that kind of intimacy of knowledge of us. Not by a stranger, maybe not even by God, but it's it's quite the thing to begin to digest. I mean, when you realize that God is infinite in all of his capacities you come to realize, hey, wait a minute, whether you like it or not, whether you invite it or not, whether you want it or not, the reality is that 100% of the focus of 100% of God, 100% of the time, is directly on you. He not only knows your name, He knows everything. Utterly and completely. Quite a thought. And the mere fact that he's able to do that for you because he's infinite doesn't diminish in any way his ability to do it for absolutely everyone else and all at the same time. It's a mind-blowing, amazing, incredible thought. It is both terrifying and comforting, depending on who you are in relationship with him. So he comes to Zacchaeus. He sees him in the tree, and he says, "Zacchaeus." Okay. So it's shocking because he knows Zacchaeus' name, at least if you're Zacchaeus, he's gone. Ah, I don't know how that happened, but. But it's shocking also because of what the name means. The name means righteous one or pure one. So now back out of the story for a minute and just think. We've got the Son of God himself, the infallible man, God-made man who knows not just our names, but everything, saying to Zacchaeus of all people, righteous one, pure one. And that's not all. For Jesus then told Zacchaeus to hurry into what? What does he hear from the tree? Come down out of your tree of sin and guilt and of shame because I've just changed my plan, Zacchaeus. And here's the thing. I must stay at your house today. And so Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. But as we're about to see, that's not the reaction of the crowd. And here's why. And again, it's cultural. Because to share table with, to just have a meal with someone, much less to stay at their house, which implies several meals, does it not? To do that is to publicly identify with that person. These meals were typically open to the public, particularly a meal at a wealthy man's spacious house. With someone as significant as Jesus, that meal itself was the public entertainment. And so people who couldn't watch The Bachelor or whatever would come out instead and they would come to these meals and sit around the sides of the tables listening in and watching. And so publicly, Jesus is declaring, I'm going to identify myself with this guy, Mr. Up in the Tree guy, Mr. All of You you Know All of His Junk guy, Mr. Humble Enough to Declare Himself Who He Is guy. I'm going to identify myself with him. And that is stunning to the crowd. Because from their perspective in that culture, for Jesus to say, hey, listen, I'm going to come and stay at your house. We're going to have several meals together. It is for Jesus to publicly defile himself with the defilement of Zacchaeus. I mean, he might as well have just jumped up in the tree with him from their perspective, which is something to consider. And so then hearing all of this from Jesus, hey, Zacchaeus, come down out of the tree and I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus then hurried and came down out of the tree. And he received Jesus joyfully, but the crowd is significantly less joyful. They had all of these great expectations for Jesus, who, who just violated the whole of them. They all walk away grumbling, saying, Jesus has gone, I can't believe this, in to be the guest of a man, oh my goodness, you might want to sit down, who is a sinner. Yes, he has. And now notice what happens at the house of Zacchaeus, the great sinner. We read, and while Jesus was at the home of this self-declared sinner, Zacchaeus stood, and that too is significant. All these cultural things. To stand at a banquet like this, in a setting like this, in the culture and day that this took place in, was to state to everyone there who was watching and listening, hey, you know what? I am about to make a legally binding declaration. What I am about to say, I will be held Two. It's a definitive statement. So he stands up and he says to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Okay, now I want to stop there for a minute. He's just saying, I am going to liquidate half of everything I own, which is no insignificant sum, and give all of that away to the poor. But he's not done yet. Because he then says, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and I think we've covered that. He's not just a tax collector. No, no, no. He's a tax collector, and he's very wealthy. Oh, he's taken a lot more than he needed to. If I have defrauded anyone of anything, you're kidding, right? If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I hereby restore it fourfold. Meanwhile, the law of God would have required him to take something that he had stolen from someone, and that's what this is at some point, and to return it plus 20%. So if he took $10 from you, he'd have to give you 12. Zacchaeus is like, 12? That's not enough. If I took 10 from you, I'm going to give you 40 in return. All right, stop for a minute. What in the world just happened in this story? Because here's what we want to say. want to say, I think I know the answer to that. And the answer to that is Zacchaeus just voluntarily bankrupted himself. And, And really, he did. But here's what I want us to do. I want us to take our eyes off of the money for a moment. And I want us all of us to acknowledge that that is a very difficult thing for us to do, because here's what happens when we hear this statement coming out of the mouth of Zacchaeus. If we care for him at all, as his friend, at least, we want to rush over to him while he's still standing and say, hey, man, Have you lost your mind? Like, are you nuts? Don't sit down. Retract your statement while you still can. This is lunacy. Have you talked to your lawyers? Have you talked to your accountants? Have you talked to your financial advisors? I mean, Zacchaeus, I don't know if you noticed, but when you just made that statement, 14 of your staff members fainted and fell right over. This is insane. I look, I get it. Jesus is here. We're all having a nice moment together. You're kind of getting carried away. Understood? But please, this is way out of control. At the very least, sleep on it. Okay, let's take our eyes off the money for a minute. Let's put our eyes on the heart of Zacchaeus. And let's ask again what just happened here, because I think the answer is very simple and obvious. I think the answer is a real conversion just happened here. A conversion from a man who worshipped the God of money to a man who now worships the God who is Jesus. And I don't think that means, incidentally, and this will come as some relief, to you, that every person who replaces the God of money with the God of Jesus will then automatically give away all their money. I don't think it means that, but I do think it means this, that when your heart ceases worshiping money and begins instead to worship Jesus and finds your security and significance no longer in money, but where it only in fact and actually can be found, which is in Jesus, it will necessarily affect what you do with your money. I think that's true. And if it doesn't, then I think that's a problem. You know, I mean, if you think about the last couple of weeks, if you've been on the train with us, you know, last week we looked at a rich man too, didn't we? Luke gives them to us almost in consecutive order. It's curious, two different rich men. Two different, complete different postures toward Christ and wealth. Last week, we saw the rich young ruler, and he comes to Jesus with the ultimate question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, who looks into the heart of this man and sees that his God is not the God who is the true and the living God as he thinks it is, but instead that his God is in fact the God of money seeks to disabuse him of that, to reveal to him, hey, let me tell you, you think you worship the true and the living God, you don't. You worship money, I'll prove that. Go, take everything that you have, sell it, liquidate all of your assets. Give it to the poor, here's the deal. You'll have treasure in heaven, and that is worth more than your treasure on earth, incidentally. So it's not asking too much, that's the idea. And then come and follow me. And what happened? He came to a crossroads, didn't he? He took a look at wealth and money and he said, wait a minute, wealth and Jesus. And he said, oh, so I've got to decide between the two of you, you know, look at the time. And he was out. He turned his back and he walked away from the Lord. Today we come to another wealthy man. A man who has earned his wealth by corruption even versus this man of status that we looked at last week. Jesus doesn't even mention money to this guy. Doesn't discuss it. Doesn't even come up. He finds Christ, this man, who has given everything away for the other God. And he gives everything away for Jesus. Just like that. It is an astonishing transformation. And I want you to notice Jesus' response to this astonishing transformation because it was, it's very, very different From what I, at least, and I think we, would have liked to have counseled Zacchaeus on. Jesus said to Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to this house since Zacchaeus also is a son of Abraham, one who has been justified by faith. And you're like, well, hang on a second, because that's a little confusing. Is Jesus saying that Zacchaeus is saved because he gave away half of his money to the poor and decided to right all of his wrongs financially? No. He's saying that Zacchaeus gave away half of his money to the poor and decided to right all of his wrongs financially because he has been saved. That's what it's all about. Here's the deal. Real faith shows up in real ways in your real life Some of those ways are large and dramatic like this, and it's obvious to everybody, and it's obvious to you, and some of those ways are small and tiny and almost imperceptible, but they are perceptible. Real faith shows up in real ways in your real life, and if it doesn't, then you need to come back to Jesus and deal with whatever your real God is. Confess it. Give your heart, in fact, to Him and by His Spirit in obedience, willing obedience to His Word because you want to, not because you have to. Learn to worship and serve Him. And it'll start showing up. You know, the analogy for us is that of a fruit tree. Good trees produce good fruit, bad trees produce bad fruit. But here's the deal fruit trees produce fruit, don't they? They do. And they don't decide whether they want to do it. Yeah, I think I'm going to produce some oranges this year. I'm an orange tree. What the heck? Next year I'm taking off. Sabbatical. That's it. Not going to do it. Too much effort. Wait, does it take a lot of effort for the fruit tree to produce the fruit? No, it's what fruit trees do. It happens organically. It just occurs. You can't not do it. And so Jesus sees the fruit of a real conversion and He proclaims a benediction upon it. He says, today, this is God speaking, salvation has come to this house and Zacchaeus also is a son of Abraham. And then He gives us the climactic statement of this whole story and in many ways the climactic statement of his whole story. Again, He's been making His way to Jerusalem and what will He do there? He will be crucified. He's 17 miles away. And he says, look, let me tell you why I came. It's not to do the things you thought I was coming to do, which is what's going to make Jerusalem so confusing for you guys once we get there. (laughs) I'll die. You're not expecting that. Incidentally, on a tree. He says, for the Son of Man came into this world, and here it is, to seek and to save the lost. And you say, "Well, well, who is that? It's Anyone who likes Zacchaeus says, hey, you know what? Truth be known, I'm a tax collector and a sinner. I mean, my body, you know, it's mostly cool and it's fine or whatever. I may not be deformed to body or maybe I am, but that's not the point. It's relevant really to this conversation. I am, in fact, however, deformed in my soul. And it's shown up in all of these different ways in my life. And the reality is the way that I've lived, the decisions I've made, what I've said, haven't said, what I've thought, haven't thought, where I've been, haven't been, who I've been with or haven't or whatever, all of this stuff, I've lived my life in such a way as to put me in a tree of sin and of guilt and of shame for which I have no answer. And truth be known before Almighty God as He looks down upon me and shines the rays of His holiness his true light into my dark heart. I am naked and exposed, ashamed, for I am a thief and I am a criminal. And I have no hope apart from Jesus who comes to us in the midst of our trees and who so identifies with us that our sin becomes his, that our guilt becomes his, that our shame becomes his, and that his righteousness Becomes ours. That's a sweet deal. On the cross, guys, Jesus climbed up into the tree that we deserved. Where he then hung naked and exposed before God in a crowd who rejected and hated him as a thief. And as a criminal, he's crucified between two criminals. What's the message? <laughs> and while he's on the cross, what were the words that he heard? The same words he said to Zacchaeus. Come down. If you're really the Christ, come down off of the cross. But he didn't. For he had to suffer and die on that tree to pay the full penalty for our sins so that through faith in him, we can be forgiven and made new. And new suggests different. Made new. Healed of the deformity of our souls. Jesus came into this this world to seek and to save lost people like me and you. And Luke postures this whole story in such a way as to help you to see that you're lost, that you're like Zacchaeus, so that he can run to you with Jesus and you can respond to this Jesus the way Zacchaeus did and find in this Jesus what Zacchaeus found. And here's how you'll know if that's authentic. In small ways... And in big ways, fruit will begin to pop out in your life. There will be real change as real faith shows up in real ways in our real lives. And if that's not there, then come back to that Christ. He's just waiting for you. Confess what your real God is. You know what it is. He does too, Newsflash. Give Him your tree and take Him not as your advisor, not as your servant, not as someone who's a part of your life and that you call on every once in a while when things go wrong that you want to correct, not as somebody that you're hoping to incorporate into the rhythm of your life so that hopefully he can make your dreams come true. It's not who he is. Take him as your king. Take him as your Lord. Take him as your benevolent father who has a better wiser, sweeter, more meaningful, more purposeful, more productive, eternally so plan for the whole of your life and who is a far greater treasure than any of the treasures of this life. And who is the single and sole God in all the universe who will not enslave you or let you down. So do that. And to that end, I'm going to ask you, have you seen yourself in this picture of Zacchaeus? And again, not in comparison with one another. But in the light of the holiness of God and in comparison with Him, have you recognized that you're in a tree? And have you responded to the call of Jesus to come down? It's a gracious call. You deserve to stay there. He's saying, yeah, I got that, but I love you enough to take your place there. Come down. Lastly, do you see the fruit of that decision in your life? Do you? And if not, then go back. Give yourself to him and submit yourself to him as king and as Lord. And then by his spirit, in accordance with his word and community with his people and sometimes with counselors and other folks that he brings into our lives, little by little, and sometimes in pretty dramatic ways even, you'll begin to look back on your life and go, man, you know what, I really am a different person than I was a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And in fact, I'm doing things today I would have never thought I'd be at all interested in. And you'll see the gracious and patient pattern of His work in your life as He molds you and shapes you and makes you fruitful and productive and more and more and more like Himself. Okay? So chew on that. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this precious man named Zacchaeus. Precious Lord, not... Because he's all that special in and of himself, but precious because you've chosen him. You set your love upon him. He is great in his sin and he is great in his repentance. Lord, he is small of stature. He is large of soul in the end. And let it be so of us. Lord, let us see ourselves in the light of your holiness and compare ourselves with you as opposed to with ourselves. Let us recognize the wreck that we've made of our lives that we might be relieved of it through the Son of God and Savior of the world who came to seek and to save, to free and to use us for wonderful and glorious purposes. Do these things, Lord, and grant to us the joy of knowing that we belong to you and make us fruitful. Do this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.